Welcome to episode 160 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. It's the first day of camp, and my three-and-a-half-year-old is hiding behind my wife's leg in an uncharacteristic bout of shyness. He's got his hands over his ears, trying to keep out the joyous singing that greeted him as he entered the large room. In hearing this story about his first moments at camp, I'm reminded of a goldfish and how you need to acclimate fish before they join the tank. Similarly, my kiddo was feeling quite a bit overwhelmed before a kind adult took notice and guided my wife and son to a quiet room filled with toys instead of energetic kids. Toys are definitely one of his love languages. The other is hugs. So he quickly settled in once he had some toys to play with. At pickup later that day, I watched another rousing concert as the entire group of preschoolers was guided through a series of songs before being dismissed. This time, my kiddo didn't have his hands over his ears, but he also wasn't singing along, just watching it all flow around him. Day two, my wife reports that he hesitated at the door to the room and seemed reluctant to go in, that is, until he spotted one of the kids from his group. That kid, the same age as my son, was confidently walking in without his parents. Spotting him, my son ran toward him and seemed eager to hold hands, if only the other kid had noticed him. Undeterred, this was all the encouragement my son needed to walk in with his friend and go join his group. Later that day, he asked me to play the CD of music his camp had sent home, and while he didn't burst out into song, he did seem to recognize and enjoy a few of the tunes. What had felt foreign on this first day was beginning to feel familiar. Day three, my son was asking if he could go play with his friend Mikey, a fellow camper in his group. He was eager to get to camp, and as he walked into the room, he ran to join his friends. No long goodbye, or really any goodbyes that morning. Once again, proving that three times is all it takes to be a regular, even when you're a preschooler. Your challenge for this week. If you're considering getting involved with a new organization, commit to attending their events three times in as short an amount of time as possible. Scattershot attendance may make you feel like you're always reintroducing yourself, where intensive networking takes the same effort, but has the additional benefit of you quickly becoming known. Yes, the first time you attend, you may feel overwhelmed and surrounded by people who all seem to know each other. The second time might be a bit better because you recognize a few people, but you may still feel a bit on your own. The third time, you'll be running in to greet your new friends, all angst melted away, just like my kiddo. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest is helping humanity prepare for an increasingly tech-driven future by helping businesses make better human experiences. With over 20 years of experience, helping some of the world's leading companies innovate, launch, grow, and matter to the people they serve, she's a consultant and keynote speaker. She speaks on how data and emerging technologies are shaping the future of human experiences and has written several books. Her most recent was Tech Humanist, How You Can Make Technology Better for Business and Better for Humans. Among her prior roles, she was one of the first 100 employees at Netflix, and she led one of the first digital strategy and analytics agencies. Please join me in welcoming Kate O'Neill. Thank you for having me. Kate, thanks for joining me from your office in New York City. 
I I don't always get a chance to meet the people I interview in person. And you and I have ha- been able to break bread on a number of occasions. I'm excited <laughs> about that. But even when you meet people, you don't always get into their life and the way I feel like we're about to learn about you and your work. So I'm so glad you're, you're a guest in the show. You know, the focus is on building great relationships, which I've witnessed you do. And to um, the context for that is around leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Yeah, and I just wanted to mention too, you're talking about you know us connecting and breaking bread. I think we did it twice in one week in two different cities at one point too. <laughs> we're really uh, we're really getting around. But yeah, the leadership is is um, it's funny. I think in my even in my childhood, I had this sense that um, that <laughs> that projects needed some guidance, and sometimes people and teams needed some guidance. And I think even even when we would be in school and sort of in grade school, and they would group us into teams to do projects, I always found myself leading those projects. And it wasn't like. I thought that no one else could do it. It just seemed like few other people seemed to want to step up and and decide uh, who was what color was the construction paper going to be or whatever. Uh, so you know, it just it started very early, and then I, I think I, I probably had it modeled for me by my parents, um, who both worked, who both were in business, and and did a lot of um, sales and relationship nurturing in in their work. Uh, and especially my mom, I think I got to work with her. She um, she became she, she hadn't been working all the years. I was the third child, and so all of my years I was growing up until about nine or so, she was at home, and then decided she wanted to go back to work. And she took a like a part time secretarial job at a, at a school that happened to be across the street from our house. And one one thing after another, kind of one opportunity, promotion, whatever, after another, she ended up moving into a a job at the Chamber of Commerce that served our town. This is in the south suburbs of Chicago. And she ended up eventually becoming the CEO of that Chamber of Commerce and just watched her take this kind of transformation and take on the responsibilities that were that needed to be done and, and figure it out. And I just really, really respected that. And so I, at that time, you know, in this nine to maybe 11 year old kid who is also volunteering or being volunteered into helping my mom with things like filing at the Chamber of Commerce office and answering phones even sometimes and things like that. I even remember I was told stories about this after like years after the fact about uh, people who were adult members of the Chamber of Commerce who would show up to things like business after hours mixers and I was working the the check-in desk and <laughs> collecting their money and handing out, you know, name tags to these adults who were, you know, business owners in the community. And I'd make small talk with them as they were checking in. And then I remember actually really enjoying the process of when everybody was all checked in at a certain point, I could, you know, s- close out the, the reception desk and go mingle with the adults and <laughs> get from, from the bar, get like a, a seltzer with a lime and go sort of stand there and chat with the, with the <laughs> attendees, like how's business? <laughs> How is it down at the car wash? You know, what's going on at, at your uh, plumbing business? It was just, that was in my wiring was just to want to make, 
conversation. And I think I was so eager to be a grown up and be able to be in business and do the adult things that people did, you know, have these kind of serious conversations. And so it was all very exciting to me always. I have to tell you, I like, I want to laugh and I'm trying not to so much that I'm about to cry. Like, it's so funny. And the visual of this is so beautiful too. Um, I, I had a, a similar, but I, I, your opportunity sounds even more awesome. My dad had a flea market booth oh. um, when I was like eight and a half to 14 and a half. And uh-huh. at first I was just kind of the kid who hung around. My sister was six years older, so she got a job there. And everybody else was like six to 10 years older than even her who worked there. And by about 10 years old, so like my second year, um, my dad like went to the bathroom and left me, you know, sitting at this booth. And (laughs) someone came. And when he came back, I was upselling. (laughs) So I gave them, this is a story that I was told, at least at this moment, I gave them a free basket. Like it was a, a housewares um, booth. Uh-huh. And I gave them a free laundry basket. So the, and then they just filled it with stuff as I walked them around to tell them <laughs> the advantages of different products and everything was so cheap. And then I figured out the math and told them how much. And my father like basically walked up and took the money. But he stood back, he said, like five feet away and just watched me go through this whole thing and upsell them and basically lose <laughs> them, you know, like right. and, and at that point he was like, okay, you get $10 a day. You know, that was my first big money. And, um, wow. and, it, but yeah, like I, I think I just really, the idea of like interacting with adults, having the opportunity to do that, be in that setting and be appreciated for that. You know, it, it's, it was fun and novel, but it also, it sounds like it gave you so many great skills for later in life, like and a lot of confidence early on. So, yeah. so if you had to summate, like do a summary, summary of leadership, like what, what is the definition uh, you're, you're sort of living by as you think of that? That's a really great question. And I know um, it, it's, it's one that I, I did think coming into it, but it's such a, it's such a nebulous concept. I think it's, it's doing what's needed. It's, it's, it's fulfilling the obligation of the moment. It, it's, it's knowing that, you know, there's a responsibility that needs to be taken or direction that needs to be set and, and doing it. And that can be informal. I think it can happen amongst a group of friends and you're all just trying to figure out, you know, where you're going for dinner or something like that. But it can be obviously as, as intense as leading a very big, successful company or a very um, tough transformation project. Or choosing what color construction paper. I mean, like really <laughs> yeah. big questions. I mean, obviously, the biggest questions. The biggest questions. <laughs> <laughs> safety you know, scissors or no safety scissors. I mean, these were big, big problems back in the day. You know, it's <laughs> interesting because oftentimes when I ask that question, people will go back in time to like, I don't know, grad school or business school. And I always have to like get them to like go further back and further back. But you were like, that was, you know, primary school. You were like, no, I have that example. So your life kind of was interesting. I I was looking through your LinkedIn because like I know you today. I know the work Mm -hmm. you do today. And it's super interesting as I was describing it like in your intro. And I want to hear kind of how you got there. But um you you didn't start in the world of tech. Like your degree, you're not like someone who was training yourself to be a CTO. Like no. you, you were like on the other side of this, the human side. 
Yeah, in a sense, that's true. So it, it's funny because I had always been interested in technology, but in a in a, a much more casual way. I learned, uh, you know, so again, I'll reference like as a child and my parents making decisions that were really formative, like they decided that we were going to have uh, home computers. And so I learned on those home computers um, how to program in basic and uh, Commodore 64, baby. <laughs> yeah. So you have that opportunity and it starts to become very not intimidating, right? Like the idea that things run on programming and you at least have some some sense of the interface that happens between the decision-making process outside the computer and what's happening inside the computer. So I think from earliest exposure, that was all very demystified for me. And then I actually won a programming competition when I was in first grade. Uh, yeah, so I, it, was, it was very much a part of my life all along. So just as much as I always think of myself as a writer, um, and I was always a writer, I won a, a writing competition in first grade as well. So it's, it's very sort of parallel paths in my life that I was a writer, I was very much into words and language and how people communicate and, and how to really understand all of that. And it was just part of my life that, you know, technology, computers, et cetera, were also part, you know, part of that. And, and the, the program I wrote uh, that I won an award for was called Doggy. It was a game <laughs> that a little dog sprite, a little terrier sprite would run across the screen and you would use the little arrow keys to control the, a leash, a collar that you were supposed to put over the doggy's neck. And uh, so it was also like, I was already interested in animals. <laughs> I really loved animals. I had to make everything about animals. My, my book that I won a statewide competition for as a writer, as a, a young writer, was called Herman the Horse Gets Lost. I mean, it's just like, these things are so intrinsic to who I am. It just it cracks me up now that there's so much evidence so early in my life that, uh, that those things were going to be formative and foundational. But yeah, as you, as you allude, then uh, going up through... Um, my education and into college, I chose to go the language and linguistics route. I was very interested in theater and music and all sorts of creative expression, but I also decided that what I really wanted to do was be a UN interpreter. That was like my big life's ambition. Those little so, Yeah, I wanted to be in the little booth. It's <laughs> kind of like you and I are both wearing headphones and speaking into microphones. It's not all that dissimilar, I guess, in a way, right? <laughs> but yeah, I just I had this fascination with the idea of um, of of the importance of of language in facilitating global relationships. Like, and I, I thought that was a really key important function. So I really wanted to do that, and so I became a German major with a Russian and linguistics double minor and a concentration in international studies. That was what I did my undergrad work in. And then uh, when I got out of undergrad, or while I was actually finishing my undergrad work, um, I saw the graphical web for the first time. I had, I, I had been using the internet as most of us in, on this, you know, I, to date me, I guess, you know, I was, uh, I, was out of co I was in college between like 91, 95. So it was the years when the web, yeah, when, when the web was first kind of coming out and coming about. So I had already been using email. I had already been using sort of Telnet and Finger and all these sort of pre-web internet services. But when I saw, and I had seen a, a text-based browser, Lynx, um, for, for those of you who may be too young to remember, L-Y-N-X, look it up on Wikipedia and you'll see what I'm talking about. It just looks like a text-based window. And that's what a web browser actually was when it was first invented. 
And then someone figured out, Mosaic, uh, figured out how to create uh, a graphical version of this. And the first time I saw it, I got like little pins and chills on the back of my neck. It was just like, this is so major. It's going to change everything. And so I, I became fascinated with that. And I actually figured out that I could build a website for the language laboratory at the university, which I was then the supervisor of. And when I built that website, it turned out to have been either the first or one of the first uh, departmental websites at the university. And it got seen by a guy at Toshiba in California. He emailed me. We ended up in a correspondence that, that led one thing after another to my being recruited into a position at Toshiba in, <laughs> in San Jose. Yeah. So it's just... That's wild. I, yeah. It, it is wild. It's really... Uh, I think more than anything, my life is kind of a testament to what happens when you are really enthusiastic about what fascinates you and what you, when you allow yourself to pursue what really interests you. And, and I think when you, you take that you know, to the point of this show, so much of it has to do with trusting the people around you too, to be able to um, help you and, and further you know, what you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's an a intri- intricate relationship there between knowing who you are and being really, you know, sort of guided by passion and enthusiasm, but also being able to connect well with others and, and, and rely on other people to help you figure out what the next steps are going to be. Well, I, I really appreciate you giving that sort of brief overview of, of a lot of years of history um, to help us understand sort of where you ended up, because I feel like in some ways you are this amazing translator um, <laughs> that like has a fluency with language and a fluency with technology and, and neither feels foreign. They both feel native to you. They're like, you literally, they're like, they're inherently a part of you and your experience of the world. But that a lot of people who are really good with technology are not so fluent in how to talk to people. And a lot of people who are great at talking to people like, feel nervous and anxious around technology and don't know how to use it right. And you're like bridging this. And I also, you know, you touched upon this like idea that you wanted to have um, a way to sort of support a global communication. Um, that was your UN uh, uh-huh. dream, right? <laughs> your interpreter dream. You are influencing a global conversation. Well, it's Yeah. Yeah, thank you. It's really, um, it's so much been a part of my life that the translator interpreter metaphor has been, has come up again and again and again, that um, when I was working in Silicon Valley in the 90s and all throughout the 20 plus 25 years of my my tech career, it's been so often the case that I have drawn upon that, that translator interpreter metaphor of like, I uh, understand language and I understand communication. And I also really um grounded in in the the roots of technology and what's really happening there so yeah so thank you that's a really great observation and and i do appreciate the the compliment that it or the 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 thought that it's influencing global relations it's certainly uh what i hope so another one of your firsts um was you know you were at um uh, netflix very early on and but your, the role that you had was was a sort of new. It, it didn't exist in the world. Like talk a little bit about how how do you step into something like that without I don't know something else to draw from. Was this sort yeah. of again you pulling from your own lived experience? And what was the role? I want to make sure I get it right. It was a content. Yeah, yeah. It was content manager. Yeah. Uh, so Which now the, it seems like everyone's one. Right. <laughs> it's kind of funny to think about what was air like before we breathed it. You know. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny that the whole building the, the intranet at Toshiba that didn't exist, like stepping into this role at Netflix that didn't exist. That was a really recurring theme of the, especially the early part of my career. And then even later, as you mentioned during the intro, that I had the um, one of one of the first uh, digital analytics and strategy agencies. Uh, so a lot of this sort of first to market or first to figure things out thing is is also part of of my career and I, I don't exactly know why other than I'm I'm just innately curious and people have given me a chance to figure it out and that's been really really amazing so I like the chance to figure out how to create an intranet at Toshiba like I didn't know how to do that when they hired me but nobody else did either so somehow I got trusted I got entrusted with that uh, responsibility and the, at Netflix too um, I managed to connect with with uh, the team at Netflix and indicate my interest in what they were doing. And mind you, this is like they've just started at this point. They had just started the um, the monthly subscription rental program of DVDs. They were still renting DVDs a la carte, so to speak. So it was just like the blockbuster model where you were paying six or seven dollars or whatever it was per DVD and they were mailing it out and then you would have to send it back. And that was the original model. When they figured out subscription and, and that it would just be a monthly subscription that you were uh, that was potentially unlimited, that's when I knew they were really on to something. And that's when I reached out to them. I was like, I don't care what it is that I do. I just want to be part of this team. You guys are obviously doing something really cool. And they found me uh, the right fit. And this content manager role stepped in over a team of six content producers who had previously been reporting to the executive editor. And so that's one of the things that I... Uh, had to figure out as a manager was how do you come into uh, like an inserted role and mm-hmm. suddenly take yeah take management responsibility for a team that's in some ways a little bit resentful that you exist as a layer because they had more top access than than they now have you've just created a layer of of bureaucracy or or you know divide between them and the top of the company so having to figure out how to to kind of be a conduit for what was happening, you know, what I perceived was happening above me, and then a conduit for, you know, praise and and recognition to the people who were reporting into me. That was a really important function of that job. In addition to figuring out things like, you know, how were we actually going to uh, manage this increasing bulk of content and make it modular and useful and and uh, rich with metadata so people could actually search it and and find good results and and how we could monetize it well and make sure that we were, you know, surfacing the, the last, the legacy parts of the, of the, of the database, things like that, like making sure that people can find things. So, uh, you know, you, you, um, and sharing these first that you had the opportunity to do, you talked about people entrusting you um, with responsibility and that you have this innate curiosity, but it also sounds like you have a willingness to take risks. And so I'm curious how you think about failure. Like, yeah, and, and as, as now an entrepreneur, like yeah. you have to think about it I mean, in a different kind of way, but like, it feels like you were very entrepreneurial is now the word we'd use, right? Like you're very entrepreneurial and innovative back in the day when that wasn't, um, as appreciated and you were like, this is just who I am. And people were like, great, somebody has to figure this out you go do it. But what did, what is failure? Like, how do you define that? Or what, how do you even frame it in your head? And, and how does it spur you on or hold you back? 
Yeah, it's a really, I think it's a really key uh, topic right now. I think we've done a little too much glorifying failure. Like I think we, we went, we went from, uh, from this idea that failure is kind of really bad and really damaging to a lot of time spent over the last few years of people saying like, but no, wait a minute, let's reframe failure and say that it's okay. And I think, I think it's both of those things. I mean, it's, it's okay, of course, to fail, but I think it's also something that should be a lesson, should teach you something, should be uh, a correction uh, of, of some sort that should make you say like, oh, okay, well, that wasn't the way to do that. Or maybe it would have been the way to do that if the timing were different or if I had taken a different approach or whatever. But somehow or other, it should be a teachable moment, right? So I, I think that's how I've thought of failure is, is more like uh, an opportunity to sort of regroup and figure out if I were going to do that again, how would I do it differently? Uh, or what will I take from that and approach the rest of my life or the next challenges uh, more intelligently? What I'm, what I'm hearing though, is that it doesn't define who you are. Like no, no, and for it so many people it does, right? Like yeah. they, like a business doesn't go the way they want it to. And they think of themselves as the failure. And yeah. you're still looking at it as like, there's this external thing that happened that I'm going to learn from. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good observation. It's really true. I think the the important thing there is to not not to externalize that, but to internalize the lesson that there is to be learned, right? Like to to look at it as um there's there's a I may have done things wrong. Sure. So uh, so I may have failed. That doesn't make me a noun failure, right? Like that's too big. That's taking on too much from one activity or one mm-hmm. lesson. But I, I am capable of failing, but I am also capable of succeeding. And I'm also capable of learning. And what I should be doing is learning if this failed, uh, if, if I failed and this project failed, what, what about it failed and what could work potentially if I did it differently or or what am I going to try next time? And what do I now know? So I think that is one of the things that if I, uh, if I look at across, across my life um, with, you know, sort of not without humility, but just a, an appreciation for whatever I've been able to do, it is that I have been able to connect lessons from different spaces and figure out uh, how the, the, the things that didn't work in one space or did work in one space could now work in a completely different industry or a completely different context or, or market or whatever. And, and I think that's, that's why, so my, my business is now called KO Insights and, uh, and, and it's a little bit, I guess, uh, self-aggrandizing to suggest that you're a very insightful person, but I think that's what the value I'm trying to offer the market really is, is um, I'm going to be able to draw some insights from a breadth of experiences, but also from this just uh, sort of lifelong innate ability to see patterns and see where opportunity really resides and not be daunted by by failure. I think that there's so much um, that people listening can can pull from this conversation and think about for their own lives um, on whatever scale they feel comfortable like starting out, but that, um, you know, a lot of us, I think, are holding ourselves back because we're afraid of making that misstep. And, you know, I, who said it? Like, you know, every at bat, you don't swing, you miss, you know, like you know, <laughs> right? whatever it is. Like, yeah. if, if you're like, you were like, no, I have to build this. But, it, but I also appreciate this idea of like, 
how you take lessons from one field or industry and you've been able to apply it somewhere else. And those are insights. And that is something you're able to do. Um, but that's, I feel like having seen you in action around like in a quote unquote networking situation, I feel like you're na- you, like, you are so naturally a curious person and you draw people <laughs> out. Um, you know, we were, we were out, um, I think this was the second time we hung out that week <laughs> and, <laughs> and you kept saying, tell me another story to this person. <laughs> like, tell me another story. Tell me. And then you asking a follow-up question and basically giving them like an opportunity to really regale us with like just their, their incredibly interesting life, but including other people in the conversation. And I just think like you drawing people in, it makes, you know, them show up. They feel like seen, um, you learn from them. So even in that moment, you're probably like learning something that you're going to then like end up telling a story on stage or sharing with a, with a client, right? Like, yeah. or giving a pep talk to a colleague, you know, like, oh, let me tell you about this one thing that my friend happened, ha- you know, he was in Dubai and this thing, ha- you know, like you're just going to share a story third way, third way. And so as you think about your network, so you've got sort of your inner tight network you know, your closest circle of supporters and friends. And then there's like the second and third layers out. And those are the people maybe you see like annually at a conference or you, you actually connect with online, but you don't see very often. Um, how do you think about nurturing and sustaining connections to those like outer layers, the people that you're not doing business with right now, but that maybe you worked with six or seven or 10 years ago, you know, you like yeah. them, but you don't have a reason to work with them right now. So, so how do you, yeah, how do you nurture and sustain that circle? Yeah, you know, I think w- one thing that it that relates to that idea is that first of all, social media has been a godsend in this regard, right? Like to try to do that level of nurturing of that broad of a network um, without social media or before social media was far, far harder. Um, so now it's great because if you are connected on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, you are regularly seeing, assuming you fo- you follow people back, uh, you are regularly seeing some semblance of, of their lives, like in snippets and slices. It gives you an instant opportunity to have some kind of connection with those people. Or you uh, you provide yourself some sort of tickler system and, and I do you know have some some kinds of reminders here and there sometimes related to, you know, life milestones like birthdays or anniversaries or whatever. And sometimes re- relating to, you know, I saw a news item and I wanted to share this with you. It re- really made me think of you. But it comes back to, you know, I, I, thank you for that observation about drawing people out. I, I love hearing people's stories. Um, and, and I think for me, the best uh, takeaway from all of this and, and how you, you keep those those relationships nurtured is just by being present when you have the opportunity, right? Like when you can connect with someone, when you are, you know, in a moment of exchange with someone, um, then be there, right? Like be present. And that I feel like just doing that has made a, a, a lot of impact in my life. Just being able to make people feel heard has has really helped us connect. And And I have some great connections with people that I probably don't see very often, but they are able to be rekindled very easily because I think we've been able to demonstrate genuine interest in each other in the moments that we have to connect. It feels like that actually stands out in a way in the backdrop of the the, the tech culture that we swim in. Um, yeah. The like Bill Clinton-esque ability to like 
be present with somebody and acknowledge them and, you know, have them be seen and heard and listened to feels like such a gift because even when we're with our loved ones and, you know, we witnesses in restaurants all the time, like friends or families sitting together and yeah. one person picks up their phone to like, maybe because they needed to. Sure, Immediately, sure. everybody else just does it. Like, so it's true. such a knee-jerk response. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I one time, like, carefully didn't. And it got awkward because I was like the only one then. And it felt like I wanted to like, <laughs> it was like an itch I needed to scratch. Like, I'm yeah. like, I'm like, if I don't, maybe we'll all come back to the circle quicker, you know? <laughs> Because <laughs> if I do it now, we're all going to disappear down those rabbit holes of technology. <laughs> but like, it was really hard to not just automatically be like, well, I wonder what else is happening. But like, I'm here with these three people. Like, how do I stay here? And that's kind of, I, I want to name it a little bit because what you're talking about is that. It's, and, and you're a person who has an obvious appreciation for technology and its place in the world. But you're also always trying to bring the human side. And I feel like being present, um, in person or even in a one-on-one online conversation being present, like that is a real gift. Well, thanks. And I, I, um, I appreciate you recognizing it as that, but I also think that we all have the opportunity to, to do more of that with each other. And, and, and I also want to put a little bit of a lie to the idea that we always have to honor the in-person relationship more than the online relationship. Because I think that that is actually one of the, the discrepancies or disparities that have been surfaced by social media. Sometimes our relationships with people online are stronger and, and closer to us and more meaningful to us than the, than the ones with the people who just happen to be present with us at that moment. So I think of that sometimes when I see people on their phones in restaurants or whatever, that I can't necessarily gauge, you know, whether they just happen to be people who spend a lot of their lives together. And so at that moment, they don't necessarily need to prioritize that time. Um, whereas they may be connecting with some of the most meaningful people in their lives online. Uh, so that, that I think is, yeah. is the, the piece that's, that's a little more nuanced and complex about relationships right now. Yeah. I like that. So, um, how, as you're like casting, um, sort of a forward lens, um, so you know, you're a futurist as well, mm-hmm. right? You'll, what do the tea leaves say about how we're going to leverage technology to build stronger connections? I mean, I feel like as a tool, like Facebook is a good example. As a tool, it's benign. Um, it can be used for like great things. Like, you know, that gay kid in uh, rural Ohio is no longer alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also has caused us to become much more sort of self-focused, introverted, um, less connected to our surroundings. So like, two extremes can happen. It's just a tool. It's I'm a hammer can be used for good or good and bad. Um, but, but I also think that the power of it is so, it's like it's a ton of potential at both, both online, but also even at in-person events. Cause my, my passion is events and organizing and, and, and sort of uh, collecting people in a space and convening them. And I think even technology can layer onto those spaces beautifully. So like, what have you seen in those moments and or what's coming and like i know that you dabble in all these you know ai and all the rest of it so like how is all this helping us be human yeah so i think that one of the things that's that's uh came during the work i did during to uh to write pixels in place which was my book before tech humanist 
Um, and it was about the intersection of physical and digital spaces. So what are experience, what are our experiences as humans when you think about them across physical and digital space, across online and offline experiences? And some of that had to do with relationships, had to do with, you know, connecting with other humans and how do we do that in physical space versus digital space? Um, how do we preserve the, the intimacy of physical space when we are mostly connecting online? Uh, so there's a lot going on there that I think is going to continue to sort itself out over the coming years. But one of the technologies I think uh, is really interesting for what it could potentially mean for human connections and, and meaningful relationships is augmented reality. You know, so I think the, the nature of, remember I said when I saw the graphical web browser for the first time, it gave me the little tingles on the back of my neck. <laughs> well, the only other technology that has ever caused that reaction for me is augmented reality. The first time I ever saw that in, in action, uh, it really just blew my mind. And I had the same feeling like this is going to change everything. And so far, uh, it's had several years to, to sort of, you know, work itself out. And uh, there's not been too many great test cases that have really made it seem uh, like it's it's in its right sort of incarnation. Like we saw Pokemon Go go really crazy. Like that that was the one um, the one instance I think of of AR that's really looked like, oh okay, this is this is what it could be. But there's just one game, one summer, you know, basically that people played that game and then sort of forgot about it. But there's so much more beyond gaming and beyond that level of, of AR. And some of it has to do with the way we communicate with each other. And I think some of this is, I think of AR as being an opportunity to show layers of meaning over things. And so some of that is you could experience, like, if you think about wayfinding in a, a city. So you're in a new city, you don't know it as well, and you need to find your way around uh, imagine that you were able to, let's just say for now, pull up your phone because there may be other interfaces, but for the time being, we can easily picture on our phone and holding up your phone and having uh, a guide that sort of shows you not only which way you're going to go and how, how you can navigate the streets ahead of you. And you're seeing the street ahead of you as you are getting that information, but also maybe getting some context of history if you want. Like you could maybe be getting some little pop-up displays that say, hey, this is one of the oldest buildings in this city. And it dates back to whatever. And this meaningful thing happened here, like a big protest took place here 50 years ago or whatever. Like you kind of get this cutting through dimensions of time and space, like to actually be connected with the stories of those who have been there before you and in a sense with other people. So you could be connected with other people who are around your space as well and who share meaningful dimensions of, of life with you. So identities that you care about or, or um, you know, passions that you're interested in. So that type of thing I think is what we're, we're potentially going to see in coming years is like the use of technologies like augmented reality to use our space well and use our connections well to surface more meaningful things about those opportunities for us. Man, that just sounds so fascinating. <laughs> and I, I also think of it as, as uh, great conversation starters. Um, you know, when you're at, I don't know, like I used to host about a lot of events that had receptions. And so we yeah. would try to make posters with interesting like stories or factoids and some really great visuals of the stories of our work. And you put them on easels and you do that so that as people are cocktailing, 
someone would stop and look at it to read it and someone else would stop to look and read it, you know, and then they'd end up in a conversation together. Yeah. You know, and I just think like in some ways, like these little pop-up like moments in time displays, people like both finding themselves standing there and learning about that. Yeah. Like having a moment of connection. Yeah. You know, like that's really cool. Like everyone else is bustling past you on this busy street, but like these two people are like, learning about this moment in time and and then realizing oh yeah we're both like doing this let's go do this together like I just think that's so cool and um and it could create a lot of layers of intimacy that we sometimes just like rush past even though we are our people like who are you know tourists in an area we don't like go out our way to like connect with the other tourists in the area yeah we don't have a means of doing that yeah um so. No, I love I love your example about at the events, you know, that those the posters or standees that have those sort of topics of conversation. And and that's that's very similar. It's a very good example of what that could be like in the AR space. But also I think what's so cool about that is that it does allow us this opportunity to be very um, spontaneous and serendipitous with connections with people. And serendipity is like my favorite construct. <laughs> so I, um, I think that in case it isn't clear, what has come through my career uh, and all of its incarnations is a fascination with meaning. And so it, it's true of like in my language love, like I was always, it's always about what is meaningful about the language we're using to communicate things. And now with technology, I think so much about the meaning of the, the uh, connection that's being created between either a person and another person or a person and a brand or whatever it might be. But there's always layers of meaning that are relevant to talk about. And that's one way that I think we could be having more meaningful connections with each other is that we're surfacing these opportunities to say like, this is something you care about. This is something you care about. Here's a chance you can talk about this. You can exist in this same space and have this kind of depth of connection about something you already care about. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like instant meaning, just add water. Yeah, yeah. Get past all the like, where are you from? Where are you from? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, get to the great stuff. I love this. So, so we're, we're wrapping up here. And one of my favorite questions to ask, um, Kate, is so, you know, we're reconnecting a year from now. And I'm grateful to know that we're not going to wait a year to do that. But if we're reconnecting a year from now and we're reflecting on all of the amazing accomplishments you've experienced, you know, and we're celebrating you, I want to know what are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Well, um, that I'm looking forward to uh, an even bigger year for my uh, speaking business, excuse me, than I had this past year, which has already been a really great, successful year. And and I, but but everything is leaning in the direction that I can see that uh, businesses and um, cultural organizations and, and kind of entities in general want to have this conversation, and that really encourages me. Um, which, by the way, I should circle back and say that one of the things that I am pleased about over this past year, um, hearkening back to my uh, desire as a college student to be a UN interpreter, is that I did, in fact, get to speak at the UN earlier this year. And it was this moment that was just like, here it is. I'm not here as an interpreter but in a way, I kind of feel like I am. And it's like the most perfect fulfillment of 
what I've been striving for all these years and a really, a really great moment to just sit there and really recognize and bask in uh, the opportunities that have been afforded me and be grateful for them. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. It was quite the accomplishment. And I remember, you know, hearing how it was sort of uh, the bookend of the earlier you know, <laughs> desire to be a UN interpreter, um, but to be there as a speaker. I mean, it's, it's for anyone that'd be amazing, but for someone who's been thinking about that institution and the global conversation for so long, um, what a pleasure to have you on Kate. How can people find you and follow your work? Uh, my website is koinsights.com, uh, but you can also find me prolifically tweeting at Kate O. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. We will have those links in the show notes at onthechmooze.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ravi. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kate. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 160. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as over 150 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. With another conference season kicking off in just about a month, this is a great time to get a copy of my book, Croissants versus Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences. I've heard from countless people how helpful and immediately applicable the strategies in my book are. And I want to thank all of you who already left an Amazon review. There are nearly 200 reviews worldwide just in the last two years. Go get your copy and all of the book's bonus content at croissantsvsbagels.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Kate, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. And I look forward to connecting again next week when we're interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on the way to becoming a successful leader. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.